0: So when I was in my early 20s, I had the joy of getting to plant a campus ministry. I got to start a campus ministry on a university not too far from here, here in Nashville. And for six years, I had the joy of serving as a campus minister for some of the finest college students that have ever existed. You know, Just some of the most amazing men and women of God. It was an amazing job, did that for about six years. And a part of that job was each year I got to disciple a handful of guys and gals as we were going on this intentional journey, wrestling with what it meant to be missionaries in a place like Nashville. And so we'd start that journey at the beginning of the school year, and we'd kind of go on that journey for a year. And we would end that kind of discipling journey at spring break. We'd go on a spring break mission trip uh, to kind of an unlikely place, Panama City Beach, Florida, which uh, doesn't really sound like a place that you'd go on a mission trip. We always struggled to raise money for that mission trip because no one believed it was actually a mission trip. But we'd go on this journey for a year, and we'd end it Panama City Beach, Florida, and we'd be there with a few hundred thousand college students that had gone, you know, to do just kind of the typical college spring break thing. And we just kind of doing, doing our thing. And we'd show up in the midst of them doing their thing, and we'd say, what does it look like to live incarnationally and missionally with the love of Christ in a setting like this? And we'd try to figure out how to share the gospel in ways that would really bless people's lives. And so I remember this one year in particular, it was the third year we had taken this trip. I'm sitting on the beach next to this student from Ohio State University. Uh, He was uh, on the end of a three-day bender, and his body was full of all sorts of um, uh, toxins and pills and alcohol. He's in a pretty rough state. We're sitting there on the beach, and I'm getting to know a story, and he's talking to me through kind of this um, inebriated state. I'm trying to hear what's going on in his life, and it's really kind of a sad moment. And I'm listening to him, and I I look down. We're sitting there on the beach, and I happen to notice on his chest is this giant tattoo of a gothic cross. This like beautiful, like ornate tattoo just just beautifully done, just on, on his chest. And I was kind of surprised because I'm sitting here listening to him talk with slurred speech, and I, I hear what he's been doing on spring break. I go, man, this is interesting. So I just asked him the question. I said, can you tell me the story about your tattoo? And I'll never forget what he said, but he looked at me and he said, I'm a passionate, radical follower of Jesus Christ. And, you know, pardon me for laughing. I just thought maybe we have a different, you know, definition of radical follower of jesus christ but he said i'm a passionate follower of jesus and he begins telling me the story of the cross he begins telling me kind of through his slurred speech about jesus and what jesus had done and who jesus was and i remember sitting there on the beach and i just had this moment of clarity where i realized just how easy it is to be familiar with the story of jesus but to have a life that has not been formed by the story of jesus To know all the verses, to know all the details, to know all the stories, to literally have the cross etched upon the skin of your body, but to not have it pressed down into the fabric of your heart. I'm sitting here listening to this guy who's familiar with the story of the cross, yet his life had not yet really been formed by that story of the cross. And as I was listening to him, the Holy Spirit began convicting me, saying, Dave, he is not the only one in this conversation who is only familiar with the cross. And I began realizing that this is kind of my story, it's so easy to know the story, right? It's so easy to know the facts, but it is an entirely different thing to be formed by the reality of what it is that Mark is getting ready to describe here. And I want us to wrestle with this kind of idea as we jump into the Word of God together this morning. Because this is an important question for those of us that are sitting in a place like Nashville, Tennessee. When it comes to the story of the cross, are you familiar with it or have you been formed by it? Are you familiar with the story of the cross or the intricate details of your life being radically formed by the claims that Mark is making about Jesus as he endures this shame-filled, suffer-filled moment for the sake of a sin-filled humanity? Are you familiar Are you formed? Because Mark is not telling us the story in Mark chapter 15 to make us more familiar. He wants us to be formed. And there's all these angles we could look at this morning. We've looked at this story so many times here at Ethos. You can go back and listen to the podcast. You can see all the details. But I want us to wrestle with this morning in particular, how does the cross of Jesus Christ begin to form the way we relate to God, relate to one another as Christians, and relate to the world that does not yet know Jesus? How does the cross begin to form us Relationally. So I'm going to read through Mark chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 21 together. We're going to pick up on the point of the story where Jesus has been wrongfully arrested. He's been brutally beaten. They have mocked him. They have whipped his back. They have shoved a crown of thorns onto his forehead. And they're now leading him outside of Jerusalem where they're going to murder Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's laid down his life. And we're going to pick up. I want to start reading in verse 21 of Mark chapter 15 Some of you may just want to close your eyes and listen to these words. Maybe you can read along with me, but I want you to to see these words, hear these words. This is what God has done for you, for us, for the world. It says that Jesus was walking out to the place where he'd be crucified, a certain man from Cyrene, verse 21. A man named Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to help Jesus carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And there they crucified Jesus, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what they could get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified Jesus, and they hung this written notice of the charge above his head that read, this is the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by Jesus stopped to insult him shaking their heads and saying, so you are the one who is going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, then come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, and they said he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down then from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also insulted him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those were standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling out for Elijah. Some ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and they put it on a staff and they offered it for Jesus to drink. I want to stop here for just a moment so you can understand what's going on. This is not an act of compassion that they're showing to Jesus here as they offer him something to drink. Typically a Roman soldier, as they'd be out in the field on their duty, they would carry a sponge often soaked with this mixture of wine vinegar. It was a kind of an antiseptic that they would use to clean themselves after using the restroom. It was a kind of a disgusting moment here. I want you to just see the the degradation of Jesus's death. As Jesus is dying, they're mocking, they're hurling insults, they literally take a used piece of toilet paper kind of in our culture. And shove it in his mouth. This is the story that's unfolding. I want you to see this. Keeps going. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last breath, verse 37. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing at the feet of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and of Siloam. In Galilee, these women had followed Jesus and cared for his needs, and many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath or a Friday. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, one who himself was waiting on the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning the centurion. He asked if Jesus had already died, and when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, he wrapped it in the linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock, and then rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And then Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of God out of Mark chapter 15, describing the way that Jesus Christ died for the sake of a sin-soaked humanity. And this, this morning, there's all these angles that we could talk about, but I want us to just kind of kind of clue in on three things, three details that Mark gives us as we think about the way that the cross begins to form our relationships. And I want you to notice the way that the cross of Jesus begins to radically form our relationship, first with God, second with each other, the community of faith, and third with those in the world who doesn't yet know Jesus. So we're gonna start with the way that the cross of Jesus forms Our relationship with god i want to do this by looking back at this kind of unusual statement that that mark records here it's kind of this unusual unusual moment in the story mark is going to describe poetically what the rest of the bible just comes right out and says Mark is going to creatively describe and help us see how the cross forms our relationship with God in ways that Paul will just name in 2 Corinthians 5 and Colossians chapter 2, the way the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 7 and 9 will just state it. I want you to notice this. Look back at Mark chapter 15, verse 37 and 38. He says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. He dies. He dies. The Son of God has died. This is is an outrageous moment. Some of us have heard it so many times, it's just a familiar statement. But the Son of God has died. And then notice the very next detail he gives, verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you're watching this in a movie, what Mark does here doesn't make any sense. But he's helping us creatively and poetically understand how the death of Jesus on a cross outside of Jerusalem is going to forever change and form the way that people like you and I can relate to God. So he says, here we are, verse 37. Look at Jesus. He's dying. He breathes his last breath. And then verse 38, the camera pans over into the city of Jerusalem, and he gives us this really weird detail, verse 38, and he says, and the the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Now, it's a weird statement, but Mark is trying to help us see how the death of Jesus was opening up the way for us to relate to God in a brand new way. During the days of Jesus, in the middle of their religious culture was the temple. It was kind of the center of the religious practice. And in the middle of that temple was a room called the Holy of Holies where they believed the unrestrained glory and presence of God dwelled. And that room was separated from the rest of the temple by this giant curtain. And it was this reminder that most people were not welcomed into the unrestrained glorious presence of God. In fact, there was only one person in their culture that could go in. He was the high priest, and he could only go in one time a year into the Holy of Holies. And so every time they walked into the temple, they would see this curtain, and they would be reminded that there was a barrier between the ins and the outs, the haves and the have-nots, the holy and the unholy. At the center of their religious practice was an understanding and a reminder that there was a distance between them and God that they could not cross on their own. And Mark is showing us something here that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross does. And he says it so poetically. He says, watch, Jesus dies. And then notice what happens in the temple. The curtain is torn in two. And notice the way that it's turned. Look back at verse 38. It's torn from top to bottom. In other words, this is a work that God is doing. This is not a work that humans are doing. This was not their work, this was not their sacrifice, this was not their religion, this was not their effort, this was not their strength. He says, listen, God has done something in that moment when Jesus died, and what God has done, God has torn the curtain, God has torn the barrier, he has destroyed the barrier between sinful people like you and me and a holy God through the work of Jesus Christ. This is the heart. Listen to this. This this forms who we are. This forms what we do every Sunday. The reason we can come and stand and sing and worship and serve and give and pray and be in the presence of God is because Jesus Christ was torn in two so that the presence of God could be made available to people like you and I. The writer of Hebrews will go on to say that Jesus' body was the curtain was the curtain that was torn. And I want you to notice this, that on the cross, any sense of human religion and human performance is obliterated by the undeserved grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I've done something so that people like you can come into the place where you didn't think you belonged. Wow! We could could just stop there doesn't that just make your heart want to explode? To think that Jesus Christ would do something like this. He so said, look at the cross. Look at the, the way that it begins to form you. And they begin to understand that because of the cross, no longer did they have a dead religion. They had a living relationship with a living God through what had happened on that sinner's cross in that place called Golgotha. And when Christians really begin to take this truth in, when we really look at His death on the cross and a curtain that is torn, it, it gives us this sense of humble confidence that can only come when you've embraced the reality of a God that would go to a cross. Why don't you think about the way the cross makes us humble for just a minute as we come to God? When you look at the cross, you realize only Jesus could do that, and only Jesus did it. And I am here this morning. You are here this morning, not upon your goodness, but upon his goodness. And it gives us this humility. I grew up in an amazing family, a great church-going Christian people. I heard the gospel my whole life. And remember, I'd hear the story of the cross. And to be honest, this is embarrassing to say, but some of you will relate to this, so it's why I want to share it. My whole life, I was grateful that Jesus went to the cross for people that needed it. I just didn't think I was one of the people that needed it. And I would have never said it that way because I was too religious. I knew the right things to say. But the reality is most of my life, I avoided the big sins. And I was grateful that God would do that for them. I just didn't know that he needed to do it for me. Because for most of my life, I had a low view of sin and I had a high view of myself. And when you have a low view of sin, when sin's not that big of a deal, when you have a high view of yourself, you have no need for a cross. You have no need for a savior. Remember when I was 16 years old, though, this story, for whatever reason, it landed like a ton of bricks, like it's happening for some of you right now, just the spirit of God for whatever reason. Boom. And I realized, man, had Dave Clayton been the only human being ever born, Jesus Christ would have had to have been born, lived, died, and raised so that I could know God. And praise God, he did it. The humility that comes when we understand that the son of God had to die so that ethos could come and worship. Wow. But the confidence that comes out of it as well. Do you know what you're worth? You're worth the blood of Christ. Do you know who you are? (laughs) Oh man, I just want to shake us. Do you know who you are? That God would send his son for you. Wow, wow, the confidence. We go to our work tomorrow, we feel like nobodies. You go home today, you feel like a nobody. You face your friends and you feel like a nobody. But you're a somebody. Because Christ has said you're worth it. And when we understand this, it forms the way we relate to God with humble confidence. We come in, wow, wow. It changes everything. But I love this, Mark doesn't just give us a picture of the way it forms our relationship with God. He gives us a picture of the way it forms our relationship with the religious community. And this this is a stunning picture that he gives us. I won't make you raise your hand, but have you ever noticed that sometimes the religious people are the hardest ones to get along with? And we're all shaking our heads, but can we shake our heads like if you're here, you're part of that crowd? (laughs) we're the ones that ruin all the parties. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're the ones that are, are the wet blanket sometimes, right? Have you ever noticed that sometimes the people that know the story of Jesus best seem to be formed by it the least? The ones that know the story of grace seem to be the least gracious. Have you ever noticed how much it just drives you crazy when the people down the street at that other church don't think the way you think? Doesn't that make you mad? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that sometimes it's hardest to get along with the people that are supposed to be with us? But I want you to watch what Jesus does, because on the cross, Jesus isn't just changing the way we relate to God. Jesus is forming and changing the way we relate to others within the family of God, even the ones who misunderstand God and don't, don't see Him the way that we do. Look at this. Jump back to verse 31 and 32. Remember, this is the point in the story where Jesus is being beaten and crucified, mocked and scorned. Verse 31. Look at this, and it says, in the same way, in the same manner, with the same heart, with the same intentions, in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked Jesus among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't seem to save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and we may believe. I These were supposed to be the people who were supposed to get it. These were the ones that had been telling the stories. These were the ones that were teaching the Bible classes for your kids. These were the ones that were writing the books and speaking at the conferences. These were the ones that had been waiting on the Messiah. And the Messiah shows up. He doesn't look like they expect. And it's not just that they misunderstand him, but their misunderstanding of him leads them to hating him and eventually killing him. But watch how Jesus responds to the religious community that misunderstands him. Does he scorn them? Does he mock them? Does he write a really pointed blog about them? (laughs) What does he do? He suffers for them. He loves them. He prays for them. He dies for them. I love what the other gospels tell us that as the religious leaders are there mocking Jesus on the cross, he starts praying, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. And Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what Paul tries to describe in Philippians chapter two. He says, you should have the same attitude of Christ Jesus in relationships with one another, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very form of a servant being made in human likeness, he became subject to death, obedient to death, even death upon a cross. And Paul's saying, listen, What we saw in Christ on the cross, what that displayed in him towards his relationship with one another should begin to form the way that we as God's people interact when we're together and when we're not. That the cross of Jesus should form the way we treat one another in ways that blows our minds. Not just with the people that we like, not just with the people that we love, but with the people that can't stand us. That Jesus is showing us, he's modeling for us in the cross what it looks like to be the people of God in a midst of unbelievable hypocrisy. I saw this so clearly in my parents a few years ago. They're just amazing followers of Jesus. They're not perfect. They're sinners just like all of us. But I grew up in this Christian home with amazing parents. And my dad is also a minister. And several years ago, there was a family in our church that for a variety of reasons, they had some things going on in their personal life. They decided that uh, they were going to take it out on our family and so they just they just gave our family the business for about three years. just any time they could just come against my dad and mom and uh, our siblings, they did it, and I remember as one of the kids, it just burned me up. Like I couldn't stand it, you know. I'm like, Dad, you want me to go over and knock them out in the name of Jesus? You know, like, you, you want me to roll their house? You want me to do something, you know? And Dad, no, it's not the way we work. It's not the way people of God respond. I remember about a year or so into the, their journey of them kind of being against us, uh, the the man who had been so mean, his wife got cancer, and it's pretty clear she wasn't going to make it. She had this pretty huge surgery, and she's going to go through, try to save her. And 12-hour surgery, and I remember my mom and dad going down and sitting there in the waiting room for 12 hours next to this husband who wouldn't even talk to them. He's so mad at my parents. For 12 hours, they sat, and they prayed, and they encouraged, and they comforted, and I learned more in those 12 hours about what it means to have community formed by the cross. And having all my years of reading, all my years of seminary, all, all my years of even searching through the scriptures at times. I go, how do we, as God's people, how are we formed in our relationship with one another by the cross of Jesus? We look at a Christ who would die and who would bless and who would pray for the very religious community that had turned their backs on him. I know for some of you, I'm just going to. Name an elephant in the room. For some of you, being in a place like Ethos can be kind of tough. Some of us come out of tradition, for sometimes people just make it kind of difficult. I just, just want to encourage you. Take the Jesus path. Walk the Jesus path. Suffer with, love, pray, encourage, serve. Because we're not just a people familiar with the cross, or're people who are being formed by the cross. And it forms our relationship with God. It forms our relationships with each other. And it forms our relationships with those in the world who don't yet know the goodness of Jesus. I want you to just look back at this. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole story. Look back at verse 39. Mark chapter 15, verse 39. It says, and when the centurion, the soldier who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he exclaimed, surely this man is the son of God. I want you to think about the scene that's unfolding at the cross for just a minute. You go back to verses 24 through 29, and it is this scene of unbelievable apathy. It says that as Jesus Christ is dying there on the cross, they're gambling for his clothes. Let's pretend we're not in church for a minute. Let's pretend we're not in the middle of a sermon. Can you imagine how calloused your heart has to be to the human experience to gamble for someone's clothes as they're in the process of being murdered? I mean, if someone was dying here this morning, right here in front of us, Can you imagine how seared your heart would have to be to the human experience to gamble for their clothes as that was going on? You get this picture at the cross. The crowd is unbelievably apathetic. And then you keep reading. It's not just apathy. It turns into hostility. You get into verse 27, 28, 29. It says they go from being apathetic to just flat out mocking Jesus. And I go, how does Jesus respond to the apathy and the hostility? Well, there's something that happens there in the midst of this story that leads us to verse 39 that we just read. And here is this centurion, this guy for for a living he was paid to crucify people. How much of a, a, a toughened, hardened, evil person do you have to be for that to be your job, day in and day out? What are you doing today? I'm going to execute somebody. That was this guy's job. He'd seen a lot of death. He had inflicted a lot of death. But verse 39 tells us there is something about the way that Jesus died that was unlike any other death. You see, Mark is making it very clear that Jesus Christ is not just another story of an unfortunate death for a good man. No, this is the death that ends all deaths. This is the death that changes all deaths. And there was something about the way that Jesus died that melted the heart of this apathetic, hostile soldier. And he exclaimed, surely this guy had to have been the son of God. I go, what do do we see here? What is it about the way that Jesus Christ would suffer and die for that soldier that changes the way that we as God's people engage a culture that sometimes feels apathetic and hostile towards Jesus? You know, I don't want to rally on our, our, our rail on our culture for a minute. I'm not going to do that. But I, I want us to think, you don't have to look very hard to notice that culture doesn't always line up with the ways of Christ, right? Can you just shake your head if you just understand? Like, culture does not always line up with the ways of Jesus. In fact, it rarely does. For a long time in America, we didn't really notice that because our culture at least affirmed publicly a lot of the things we think we affirm, and those things are changing. There are places in our culture where being a follower of Jesus is gonna start to cost you something. Something. You're gonna experience apathy. People aren't gonna be as welcoming to the story of Jesus anymore. I'm not telling you something you don't know. We experience this every day. There'll be certain times we're gonna start experiencing hostility. And I think sometimes in the midst of apathy and hostility, it, it, it breeds this sense of fear in us as God's people, and we go, what are we gonna do? And we start saying kind of crazy things. Well, if only we could elect the right person this year. Jesus Christ will be the God of this country again. I'm not saying those things don't matter, but please hear me very clearly. Was Jesus' strategy for changing the world voting for the right human being? No. Or we'll go, maybe if I could just get on Facebook and be a little bit louder. When has that ever worked? (laughs) Just make sure everybody knows what I think. Or sometimes we go to the other side and say, let's just disengage, let's get out of here. This place is too bad, let's be secluded to ourselves. And I go, Jesus teaches us what it looks like to engage a hostile and apathetic culture. He loves it, he dies for it, he raises for it so that the love of God can flow through him. My fear is that so often we have engaged the culture wars with the wrong weapons. And we think the culture war is about being louder or being stronger or being righter. We engage the culture with the cross. The cross is the tool. The cross is the the shape of our lives as we march into a culture. And I'm not saying that this is a prophetic word, but the Lord keeps putting this in my heart. I think there's something there for us to discern as a community together, but I believe in the days ahead. Ethos marching forward so often gonna feel a little more like a cross than it is an empty tomb at times. Because there's something about the cross that melts an apathetic and hostile culture in ways that our strength and encouragement and joy never could. There's something about watching someone face the cross. I love this because Jesus proves to us on the cross that it is possible to disagree with the sin of a culture and yet, still love the people in that culture. You know, we we live in a world that says it's impossible to disagree with someone and still love them. Can we just call that for what it is? That's garbage. Like, I disagree with my wife all the time. Actually, I never disagree with her. She always disagrees with me. Amen. That's Sydney. That's my wife. If you don't know her, and uh, we disagree, and I love her like crazy. I disagree with my kids and they disagree with me. And I love them like crazy. And you can be a follower of Jesus and disagree with sin and still love sinners like crazy. And it's on the cross of Jesus that those things collide. And all of a sudden we understand what it means to engage the world around us in brand new ways. Think about the way that this has looked for one of our churches in India. We have churches planted all over the place, but one of our churches in India earlier this year they're in northeastern India in a place that is kind of dominated by this kind of extreme um, Hindu government. And they, they kind of decided, hey, our church couldn't meet there anymore. And so they voted on it. City council, they bulldozed our building, <laughs> on the building that our church owns on the property that we own. And they said, you can't meet here. And this is going to become a site of Hindu worship now. And, and, and they can do that, just kind of different culture. But um, our church woke up on Monday morning going, okay, what do we do about that? And one of the kind of dominant ministries of our church there in northeastern India is uh, they have a school for kids there in the community whose parents happened to be on the council that voted to have the church shut down. And so uh, our ministry team woke up and said, what does it look like to be a people formed by the cross engaging in apathetic and hostile culture around us? And so they woke up on Monday morning and they did what they knew to do on Monday morning and that was to love and to serve the kids, the very kids of the ones that had come against them. It's been amazing to watch what God has done over the last 10 months. He has used this little group of people who are being formed by the reality of the cross to melt the hearts of a group of people that used to be opposed to them. This is the joy of being God's people, is embracing that sometimes God will choose to use your life to advance his good in ways that you wouldn't have chosen. But in the cross, we can look at Jesus and say, but God's not done with us. God's not not done. He's still on the move. I want to ask you, when it comes to the story of the cross, are you just familiar with it? Or are you being formed by it? Is the cross of Jesus changing and shaping and moving us? As we engage God, as we engage each other, as we engage the world around us. And so this morning as we respond to the word, we always we don't want to just read the word and leave unchanged. We go, okay, God, we want to do something with this. I want to think about how we respond together this morning, kind of one of three ways for some of you. This is your day to step into this story. You have never placed your faith in Jesus. You have never been baptized. You've never been filled with the Spirit of God. For some of you, the Spirit of God has been crushing your heart as we've been reading this story, and today is your day to step into the story of the cross, to be shaped by it. In a minute, we're gonna stand up. We're gonna take communion. We're gonna worship. If you want to give your life to Christ, there'll be some men and women up here to my left at the Respond Banner. You can come pray, come talk with them. You can be baptized today. They'd love to share whatever it is that's going on with you. So for some of you, it's to step into it. For some of us, number two, It's to come back to it, to come back to this story. Every single week, we take communion. We take the bread, we take the juice. And every week, we are proclaiming, as we break the body and as we take the blood, that it is the cross of Jesus that shapes and forms everything we're doing here. And sometimes, even a moment like communion becomes familiar, and it tends to lose its power. But in a few minutes, as you walk to the tables, as you walk, you're reminded of the love of God and the grace of God that in turn shapes the way we view each other quite differently. So for some of you, it's to step into it. For some of us in a moment, it's going to be to come back to the story, to go to the table, to take communion. But for all of us tomorrow, we've gotta decide, are we gonna keep walking with Jesus as he inevitably journeys towards the cross? Do you remember the story back in Mark eight that we studied about seven years ago when we were there in Mark chapter eight? I remember being there in Mark chapter eight. And Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, and he turns to his disciples, and he says, and anyone who wants to follow me must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and come along as well. And Jesus makes it clear that to be a follower of Jesus means at times you will have to embrace your own cross. I think sometimes when we talk about the cross, we leave here going, okay, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to suffer? Where am I supposed to lay down my life? And I go, if you walk with Jesus, you don't have to worry about finding the cross. The cross will find you. You stick with Jesus and the cross will find you. But the good news is when the cross finds you, you won't be alone. Jesus will be there right beside you. He'll be forming you. He'll be shaping you. And the love of God will be flowing through you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. A life shaped by this story. May we not be A group of folks sitting on the beach with the cross tattooed into our skin, with the story running through our mind, but lives that are completely unaffected by the claims that this makes. What an amazing God we have. Let's stand, I'll pray for us, and we'll get ready to take communion and to worship Jesus together.